You're tuned into Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and Chris McGregor. Joined again today by one of our favorite folks, Mike Aquilina, author of The Mass of the Early Christians and several other books on the early church, all published through our Sunday Visitor. Mike, of course, Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and we always want to encourage you to daily visit the website www.salvationhistory, all one word, salvationhistory.com. And today we're going to be talking about St. Benedict. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the program again. Well, it's great to be back. I always have such a good time here. Right, and we were talking last about St. Benedict and about the links that we have to his heritage in our own locales. You said you have Benedictines there, right? Oh, yes, yes we, we do. do. Wonderful. Yeah, they're the missionary Benedictines sisters at the, at the Immaculata Convent in Norfolk, which are just, you know, their charism is hospitality. Oh, yes. And that comes from Benedict himself. He, he placed an emphasis on, on hospitality. We have Benedictines here at St. Vincent's in Latrobe and in many parishes as a result, because the, the monastery sends some of its uh, priests out to parishes. But they also run St. Vincent's College here nearby, which is a wonderful and, and beautiful grounds. And so, so I have a lot of affection for the Benedictines and, and as a result for their, their founder, St. Benedict. Well, they really do know how to create that atmosphere of hospitality with their buildings, with their retreat centers. We have the St. Benedict Center in Schuyler, Nebraska as well, run by the wonderful uh, fathers and brothers and uh, just one one of the best retreat areas around. And again, it's all about that hospitality. In the beginning. Uh, of course, we're talking about early 6th century in mm-hmm. the 500s. St. Benedict conceived his movement, his monastery, as a lay movement. It wasn't intended to be a movement of priests. The Church imposed that on the order later on, but in the, in the early times, it, it was supposed to be a, a haven for people from all walks of life, so they could pursue their work and their prayer in community and do their work, whatever that work may be. Do we know very much about his early life, his upbringing? Well, we know that he came from, from the Italian town of Nursia, Norcia, and he, he came from a merchant family. And apparently, his, uh, he went with his parents to Rome early in life to study, because that's where the best schools were. He, he must have enjoyed his studies to some extent, because he retained such a high value for learning all through his life, and mm-hmm. that really left a, a mark on his foundation of the Benedictines. They've always placed a high value on learning. He spent those early years, in his teen years, in Rome studying. We get a lot of these details from the life of St. Benedict that we find in St. Gregory the Great's dialogues. He was a great admirer of Benedict. But mm-hmm. at some point during his teen years, he really became disenchanted with Rome and he thought it, it was too fast-paced, and he didn't like the excesses of the lifestyle of many of his fellow students. So he, um, he wanted to withdraw, and so he did. He went out into the, the country and, and withdrew from the world. Yeah, I feel, I feel bad for those individuals now in today's culture who have that same type of feeling but and want to withdraw. Maybe that's a spiritual call from God to come and grow closer to him, but our culture would call that depression, or it would say, uh, get your act together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know? Well, you know, it might have been that way in his day, too, because the, the monastic movement was there in the West, but it wasn't as well-organized or well-formed as Benedict himself was about to find out. Uh, in the lands of Italy. And so it might not readily come to mind for someone who is inclined to the contemplative life or the life of a hermit or the life 
in a monastic community. It was kind of in disarray at the moment. Well, the monastic communities weren't exactly the model that was, in some cases, as established by St. Saint, Saint, uh, was it Anthony of the Desert? Right, right, right. Well, in the East, there was more of a clear line of, of development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, uh, St. Anthony of Egypt is, is usually attributed with the, the founding of monastic life. He, he lived as a hermit in the desert and very soon drew a lot of disciples to himself. Before he knew it, he had a monastic community around him, and, and this pattern was followed in a lot of different places in the East. Eventually, St. Basil did the same thing in, in Cappadocia, and Basil wrote a rule, and then later on, Augustine, St. Augustine in mm-hmm. North Africa, wrote a rule for the monastic life. Now, St. Benedict, what he did was um, he built on all of his predecessors. He took elements of their rule, and he tested them in community life, and he adapted them to, to his experience. It was his rule, really, that prevailed and got the, the widest spread. You know, it, it really did spread like wildfire, the Benedictine movement in, in monasticism, because it was so adapted to real life, real human experience. Benedict had a great sensitivity, a great warmth, and a great love for humanity, and that comes across in his rule. When he left Rome... He, he, of course, he came from a wealthy family, and he left with one of his servants, his elderly nursemaid, mm-hmm. his childhood, and she was to attend to his, his cooking and that sort of thing. They left, and they, they found themselves in a place called Enfide, a little town. She borrowed a wheat sifter from the neighbors one day, and she, it was made of clay, and she broke it. Uh-oh. This is a terrible thing to break a kitchen utensil you've borrowed, mm-hmm. especially if you're new in town. And St. Benedict miraculously restored it, you know, just reconnected the pieces miraculously. And uh, she was amazed by this, of course, and, and she couldn't help but talk about it to the neighbors. And so uh, St. Benedict's fame grew. That's not what he went, went looking for. That's not what he sure. <laughs> had left Rome. So uh, he's still a young man. But what he did then was he went looking for a place where he could really live in solitude, and he found a cave and it wasn't a big cave, only about 10 feet deep, they say, in a town that's the modern Subiaco in Italy. Right. And, and, and that's where he retired by himself. He was given the habit of a monk by a nearby monk named Romanus, and Romanus used to lower food to him daily while he lived in his cave for, for several years. Yeah, our Archdiocesan seminarian, Andy Rosa, who is studying in Rome and gives us reports every week, uh, actually had an opportunity to visit there. Oh, really? And to go to the cave, because most of the time the, the cave is blocked off. Oh, really? But he was able to get to the cave, and uh, I guess it was quite the experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll bet it was. I'll bet it was. Well, he lived in, he lived in that cave for several years, and, and what happened was that the, the shepherds in, in the nearby hills noticed him. The cave was fairly inaccessible, from what I understand. I've never been there, but I'm sure Andy Andy might confirm this. Mm-hmm. But the, the cave was fairly inaccessible. But the shepherds noticed him, again, worked miracles out of compassion for people, and his fame grew once again. And pretty soon he was attracting uh, a, lot, a lot of attention, even though that's not what he intended. He attracted the attention of monks in a local monastery, a nearby monastery, I think it's I think it's called Vicovaro. Uh, that's that's the monastery we think it was, mm-hmm. and they elected him abbot <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> without his consent. Uh, finally, finally he he did consent to go out because he thought they needed help. And when he got there, he found that they did indeed need a lot of help, but they weren't exactly willing to be helped. 
right. they were incorrigible. They, there were a lot of moral problems, a lot of disciplinary problems. They just did not want to live in community. They didn't want to live in poverty, and they didn't want to keep, keep to a truly monastic way of life. So Benedict went back to Subiaco, to his, his cave, and before long, he did have monastery, over which he was his abbot, and pretty soon 12 monasteries. There were 12 monasteries near that, that, uh, that area of Subiaco, so he was abbot, father abbot over all of those. And, and pretty soon, he attracted envy once again, this time from local priests who didn't like the fact that people were, were looking admiringly at the monks and looking up to them and seeking spiritual authority from the monks. Remember, the monks were all laymen. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a clerical atmosphere we're dealing with here. It's kind of interesting to note that hospitality is one of the Benedictine spiritualities or gifts, and certainly people weren't too hospitable to Benedict along the way. No, but he continued being hospitable himself. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that back at that other monastery where he had the incorrigible monks, they were very inhospitable to him. In fact, they tried to poison him. <laughs> yeah, that's not very nice. <laughs> no, no, no. They handed him a cup that was laced and laced with poison, and, and he made the sign of the cross over the cup, and it shattered. Oh, my. I guess this priest tried a similar thing. He gave Benedict poisoned bread, which was carried away by a raven. And so Benedict was saved once again. Then the, the priest did a very strange thing. He paid dancing girls to go and tempt the monks by dancing in their courtyard. Uh, that didn't work either. But at that point, Benedict said, you know, it's probably best that I leave just yeah. in order to keep the peace. Oh, wow. So he, he did. He left this foundation of 12 monasteries and all these monks, and he moved on to Monte Cassino, where he founded his great and lasting foundation there, uh, the one that, that, um, that's so beautiful to see. Uh, right. It was bombed, actually, during World War II, but has been, has been greatly restored. Now, Monte Cassino, help me, Mike, isn't that, that's still a very, that's an active monastery today? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and of course, it, it grew a lot down through the ages, but... Uh, but that was his great foundation, and he was there for many years. There's a dispute about the dates of his death, but he died maybe in 547. Some, some people, though, think that he lived as long as 560. So he was there quite a few years. Right. I think it was in the 530s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was, he was there for some years and, uh, and was able to establish quite a community. Now, it, it would be here that he would lay out his rule, Correct. Right, that's where he, that's where he set it down, and uh, and he he dictated it, and and it might have developed through his lifetime because again he was always drawing from his experience, and he was always basing his rule on the rules of others. So he was drawing from not only his own experience but the experience of other communities. The rule had a great influence the next generations, and what's interesting is that in the very next generation we have uh, we have Gregory the Great, who was the essentially the mayor of Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, in, in the secular sphere, and he at one point decided to retire from civic life, and he was a very wealthy man. He turned his home into, the monas- into a monastery, and it wasn't a Benedictine monastery, but he, was pro- he himself was profoundly influenced by the Benedictine rule and had a great devotion to St. Benedict, and he sought out a number of Benedict's immediate disciples, one of whom was living there in Rome, and then there were others who were living in, in the nearby towns because Benedict's foundations weren't very far from Rome. So he, he talked to these people, he interviewed them, he asked them for their stories about Benedict, and, uh, and then he wrote the earliest life of Benedict that we have, modeling that life on, on what the Eastern Fathers had done for the, the Eastern monks and hermits. 
So we have a fairly early and, uh, and I think, fairly reliable uh, life of St. Benedict from the hand of, of St. Gregory the Great. This is a great thing. Yeah. Uh, Mike, just for people who may not know, we always like to engage in catechesis wherever we can here. Um, would you help people understand what the word rule means when it comes to these various orders? It's a way of life. It, it is what it sounds like. It's the rule. It's the measure by which they live. Usually it's set down by the founder or by his disciples who are kind of setting down the, the teachings of mm-hmm. the founder. Right. And, uh, and, and it's the way of life to which they commit. In the case of Benedict, there are the, the two great pillars, which are prayer and work. What's very interesting is that Benedict, unlike his, many of his predecessors in monastic life and in life in general, placed such an emphasis on manual labor in previous generations, and certainly in his own generation, manual labor was looked down upon. If you were of the nobility, it was beneath you, and you weren't supposed to be doing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, but he thought that there was a dignity to work, that work was part of being human, and that it gave a discipline to one's life, and it was a spiritual discipline. Some people add a couple of other rules to Benedict's life, and one of them is, is study, mm-hmm. uh, because he placed such an emphasis on study in the life of the monk. And again, that set him apart from some of his predecessors, because some of the monastic movements were actually anti-intellectual movements. Mm. You know, we're going to leave behind all that worldly emphasis on learning and just contemplate the face of God and pray. Benedict said that study is an important component in the life of the monk, and Benedictines ever since then have emphasized that. And then some people say that the, the fourth pillar would be contemplation. You have prayer and work and study and contemplation. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. I, I know of a, a diocesan priest who was formed from his experience at Mount Michael, which is uh, uh, also the wonderful Benedictine abbey that we have here in Elkhorn, Nebraska, which is just a stone's throw from here. And at Mount Michael, he learned that to work is to pray. And for him, his work in the diocese as a priest so much of what he does, he tries to fashion the busyness of the, of the parish work for him is his prayer in so That's many right. ways. And Benedict had such a keen appreciation of that. One of the things he talks about is living humility. And he said the way we do that is by always living in the presence of God. Well, we know that we're always in the presence of God because God is everywhere. Mm-hmm. But we're not always aware of it. And what he asked us to, to do is to cultivate that presence of God, or to cultivate our awareness of that presence of God through constant prayer, and mm-hmm. that our work is a form of prayer. So there wasn't this, this separation between the stuff I'm giving to God and the stuff I'm, I'm just doing to get by. God was everywhere in the workday. He was everywhere in life. And again, we see that, that great appreciation and that great sensitivity, the great warmth that, that Benedict showed toward, toward human nature. He's really one of those church fathers who did such an extraordinary thing, not just in his teachings for the church and maintaining how to live out the gospel in in the world that he was in and for generations to follow, but because of his rule and because of the monasteries following of that, many scholars today, Mike, don't they say that Western civilization was really founded on those pillars found in the monastery? That's right. He was part of a generation. There was Benedict and Cassiodorus who was another monk of, of his time, and Boethius, and who was a philosopher and a civ- civil official. 
and he wrote a number of philosophical works while he was in prison awaiting his death sentence. Well, these three men really did establish the foundations of medieval learning, and Benedict, Benedict made it possible by, by creating an institution that would encourage learning, that would foster learning, and that would uh, more or less enforce learning because it was part of the rule. It was mm-hmm. part of their everyday life. It was part of their commitment. They were going to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, they became centers of learning because so much of civil life was falling into decline at that time because of the, the crumbling of the Roman Empire in the West. And as a result, Benedict got this, uh, this curious and unique title in the Church. He's known as the Father of the West. Mm, because okay. he really did exercise a fatherly role in the development of, of Christianity in the West, but also in the development of, of culture in the West. His monasteries became the vehicle that, by which learning was carried into the future and, and out to many lands, too, because many of the mon- monastic foundations became missionary foundations. Gregory the Great was famous for for uprooting these monks and, and sending them to far-off lands like England. So. Well, and it really, it can't be understated. I, I, I love a, a scene where the monasteries are here in Nebraska, which, Mike, I don't, I don't know if you've had the experience of our plains, but when you drive through, it is all agriculture. Right. And it is set in the heart of an area that has benefited this agriculture, this great breadbasket that we have here. Yeah. It, a lot of that understanding of how to develop that started with Benedict, his monasteries. Well, that, that's true. And, and, you know, it's funny when you talk about the topography. Here in, uh, where I live in western Pennsylvania, we have rolling hills, mm-hmm. uh, these rolling hills all over the place. And our Arch Abbey, St. Vincent's, is set in these beautiful green rolling hills. And the monks, for many, many generations, because St. Vincent's was the first foundation in the New World, the first Benedict, Benedictine foundation in the New World. They farmed the land there, so they're on many, many green acres. And then they, uh, they built up their own buildings. Mm-hmm. They had uh, a certain rule that before you could found a community, you had to have a bricklayer in, in your community. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the monks had to make the bricks, and another one had to be able to lay the bricks. So you had to have monks that did all of these different forms of manual labor. And they built a gorgeous, gorgeous abbey up there. It's, it's, it's beautiful architecturally, but it was built by the monks. And then they built the college, which, it, which is esteemed now. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jim Toohey just left the Bush administration in order to take the presidency of the college. Mm. So there's some renown there uh, in the monastery, but it, it's the same sort of thing. It's set on this, in this remote place with, uh, with rolling hills and farmland all around it. So you just see the fields that, that are all planted leading up to the to the monastery it's it's a beautiful thing to see well and his the the fruits of benedict's labors were also felt by his sister scholastica that's right it seems to be a very reliable uh, historical detail that they were twins and that she was committed to our lord from infancy hmm. so she must have been entrusted to a convent very early on but it seems that she introduced benedictine ways uh, her brother's ways Mm-hmm. the convent, and they used to visit with one another once a year. And the, the only details we have of her life, really, are um, of the very end. And, uh, and it's said that during one of these visits, she wanted to talk with Benedict. She must have sensed that the end was near. Mm-hmm. She was mm-hmm. a woman at the time. And so they were talking, and Benedict said, well, you know, uh, the, the rule states that, that we cannot be away from the monastery overnight, so 
the, the, the brothers and I have to return. Scholastica bowed her head in prayer, and suddenly a great storm came up outside with driving winds and hard rain so that the, the brothers couldn't even put their head outside the door. <laughs> so, so they ended up staying there for, for three years, and the brothers were edified by listening to Benedict and Scholastica talk with one another for three days, and at the end of three days, she died, and Benedict said he saw her soul ascend to heaven like a dove. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a beautiful end to a beautiful life, but we don't know much else about St. Saint, Saint Scholastica. We, we, uh, we know that she was buried there mm-hmm. in the grave that Benedict had, had, uh, had reserved for himself, mm-hmm. and later on he was buried in that same grave. Oh, fascinating. You know, one of our uh, most avid listeners is Father Thomas out at the uh, Benedictine Center out in Schuyler, and I think he would love the story that you told me when we were first talked about the, uh, doing this show about your community. Uh, now, the community in, in Pennsylvania was the first Benedictine community. That's right, in the United States, and it was founded by, by a, a German named Boniface Wimmer, and Father Boniface uh, came here from, from Germany, and he wanted to establish the monastic life here as it was in Germany, Mm -hmm. and he did. He brought a number of monks over with him, and and a number were attracted to the life here in this area. We had a large German population here in western Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. but also a large Irish Catholic population. Well, Father Boniface did all this before there was a diocese of western Pennsylvania. We were the Diocese of Philadelphia at the time. Mm -hmm. When Rome decided to divide the state and make the Diocese of Pittsburgh, they, they assigned a great theologian named Michael O'Connor to be its first bishop. And Michael O'Connor was famous for being a teetotaler, a zealous promoter of total abstinence from alcohol. Mm-hmm. Well, he ran into some problems because the monks, from time immemorial in Germany, had brewed their own beer, like some monasteries make in Italy make their own wine, right. have with meals. Well, the, the monks in Germany brewed their own beer, and they would have it with meals further complicate the situation, Father Boniface's nephew had come over from Germany and opened a tavern Uh near the monastery, Uh, and then uh, he went bankrupt, and the monks bailed him out and sent him away, and so so you had this strange situation of the monastery not only brewing its own beer, but also owning a tavern, and and the new bishop was not amused. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So Bishop O'Connor ordered the monks to stop all of these activities, and, and they, could, they could live with the closing of the tavern. But they said they wanted to keep brewing the beer as monks had always done. Mm-hmm. That was Father Boniface said. Mm-hmm. They wanted to appeal to Rome over the, head of, uh, <laughs> over the head of Bishop O'Connor, and Father Boniface actually went to Europe and started appealing to the nobles, the nobility in, in Europe, to help him in this. And eventually... Uh, the word came from Rome that they should, they should, um, they were right, and they, they, it was within their rights to brew their own beer as their their monks had always done, but that they should obey their bishop while he's bishop. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing because it's a family resolution to the problem, uh, you know, rather than something legalistic. It, mm-hmm. It's 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 recognizing the realities of family life, and so they did. They stopped brewing beer eventually. Uh, from what I understand, eventually that brewery became Rolling Rock Beer. Oh really? Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> right, right. Who knew? Yeah. yeah, three three point rolling rock. There. <laughs> <laughs> Not too heavy on the alcohol. Right. Well, they're just it, it it's a 
a wonderful legacy that he has left us in so many ways, the life of St. Benedict. And the thing is, Mike, I for the longest time around my wrist, I have a St. Benedict medal. Oh, wonderful. I do. Get it. Uh, well, I just I I received it as a gift, and there is a special blessing. It's not you apparently as a religious object. There has to be a special prayer of exorcism. Oh my! That comes with it. That you pray with a Saint Benedict medal because of what you have talked about before. How he is used to uh, his intercession to ward off at the attack of evil. Oh sure, and he himself spent uh, spent all those years in the cave battling off demons. And he wanted to purify himself and. And the devils wanted no, you know, did not want that to happen. You know, right. they sensed that they were dealing with a, a great soul here, and they fought him through the whole ordeal. Uh, but that's really beautiful. Of course, now the name Benedict is very much current with us because our our Holy Father chose the name Benedict to to honor this great saint, the Father of the West. And a lot of people have seen in that great significance that he sees this as a time when we really do have to have to struggle and work hard and pray, work and pray mm-hmm. to, um, to preserve the cultural heritage, the Christian cultural heritage of the West, which is what Benedict's foundation enabled the Church to do. Right. Well, one of the other things that I had heard at one point attributed to Benedict was the fact that when we hear the phrase that an idle mind is the devil's workshop, uh, I mean, he really did believe that idleness was the enemy of the soul. He did, he did. He, he, uh, and that's why, again, we, we often hear attributed to him that, um, that phrase, to pray and to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, that developed into to pray is to work. But he, he did place that emphasis on prayer and work, and, and he saw it as a spiritual discipline. It's not just um, keeping busy so that you stay out of trouble. Right. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's keeping busy at work so that you fulfill your human nature, which was created by God. Absolutely. And you God through that work. Wonderful. Well, Mike, we want to thank you again. This has just been yet another enlightening discussion. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for bringing up all of our wonderful Benedictines here in the United States, because I love talking about them. They're, they've done so many great things in our history, and they continue to do so today. Amen. I just love being with them. If you've I, ever had the opportunity to, isn't it true, Mike? I mean, just being in their presence is just, there's something special about the Benedictines. I'll plug the books of, of one of my favorite Benedictines, and that's Father Tom Acklin, A-C-K-L-I-N, yes. who recently came out with two wonderful books, one called The Unchanging Heart of the Priesthood yep. and The Passion of the Lamb. Both of them are beautiful books. The, fir- the second one, the, the one on the Passion, I use for spiritual reading very often. That's why it's so odd that the name escaped me. But the, uh, the other one has made quite a splash, and I know that a number of bishops in the United States have given it as a gift to all the priests in their diocese. Well, he's a, another example of, of a wonderful Benedictine, because, Mike, we have been blessed to have Father Acklin on with us twice. Oh, wonderful. Oh, oh. I'm glad you, you, you had a chance to meet him. Oh, he is, and, oh, yes, the unchanging heart of the priesthood is just, uh, I mean, both of those books that you cited are absolutely phenomenal. And here is, I mean, he's a psychoanalyst. Right, and he's it, such a passionate man and such a good monk. Yep. He is, and but he has. Tra- that's where he's taken his work and had taken it into prayer, and I think he has so much to teach all of us. I think um, over the years, uh, the next few years, I think will be a time when we really discover the gifts that he has. Well, he he is there at St. Vincent's Monastery, the monastery I've been talking about. He teaches at St. Vincent's College and also at the seminary there, St. Vincent's Seminary, which is one of the largest seminaries in the United States. 
So a lot of good things will come out of there, you can be sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope when, uh, when the next time you speak of him, let him know that his uh, presence on the airwaves here have been, it really touched a lot of hearts. Boy, did I hear a lot from a lot of priests Oh yeah. Uh, after his last interview. He will be thrilled to hear that. All right. Again, Mike, thanks so much. We do appreciate uh, having you with us uh, yet again to talk about uh, St. Benedict today. And uh, we look forward to future conversations. Take care.